Please remain standing as you're able, and as we come before God's Word, let us do so very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have, reciting what uh, they called the Shema and uh, what Jesus would call the Great Commandment. If you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This morning, the scriptures from the 16th chapter of Deuteronomy, where Moses outlines for the people the three great festivals they are to keep. One is known uh, as Pesach, or what we call Passover. One is known as Shavuot, or what we call Pentecost. And the third one we'll talk about this morning is called Sukkot, or Tabernacles. And you'll look at, if you can see on the altar this morning, we see a few branches and a fruit called an etrog. And this decoration is because this is what the people were to bring, one of the things the people were to bring before the Lord at the festival of Sukkot, otherwise known as tabernacles or tents. And we'll say more about that in a minute, but uh, this is chapter 16 beginning in uh, verse Uh, 13, celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, for uh, seven days and be joyful, um, excuse me, after you have gathered uh, the the produce from your harvest and from your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful in your festival. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your town. Celebrate this festival to the Lord at the place that the Lord your God chooses. And the Lord your God will bless your harvest and will bless the work of of your hands and your joy will be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. When I look at Deuteronomy 16, uh, verses 13 through 15, what I see is a product of some of what's happened in my life the last few years. In the last four years, uh, my two older sons have been married. And both of them, both of them have gotten married in a wedding venue. And in the wedding venue, uh, the, the seating was uh, both for the wedding and for the reception was limited. And one of my uh, two daughters-in-law come from a very large family, and she has a number of uncles and aunts and many, many cousins. And so uh, for that wedding, as RSVPs came in um, for, from the cousins and from the aunts and the uncles, uh, we saw that on the groom side, our guest list began to shrink. And so we became quite expert at sitting down at the table uh, with our sons and their fiancés and talking about guest lists. And I say that because what we have in front of us in part in Deuteronomy 16 is God commands them to have a great party and then gives them the guest list. And like any guest list, I've got a couple questions. The first is, who's not invited? And then the second one is, well, who is invited? And I find that in this list, I'm surprised both ways. Who's not invited? Well, if you look at this, there's no, uh, um, there's no discussion of inviting your neighbors or your friends. And so I began to think, well, maybe there's just not enough room in the tent. Maybe it's a a limited venue like uh, where our our sons got married. Uh, But more than likely, we will come to find out it's because your neighbors and friends, they're supposed to be throwing their own party. So let me go to the second question, which is, who is invited? 
And the short answer for this is some very unlikely people are invited into this festival of Sukkot, this tabernacle. They're invited into this feast that you're going to throw in your tent. Let's look at some of them. I mean, we understand our sons and daughters, but then after that it goes, your male and female servants. Now think about how awkward that is. If they've been serving you all along, they've been helping you, suddenly you invite, invite them to a party, they come through the, um, the opening of your tent, and where do they go? Do they go to the kitchen? Or do they go to the place of honor? How strange it's going to be for both of you, this reversal of roles. And then it gets weirder and weirder than that. Next, you're inviting the Levites. Now, you may not know much about the Levites, so let me just give you a 21st century equivalency. The Levites are like inviting the pastor to your party. Now, that may not seem too terrifying to some of you, and some of you maybe it does. But you need to think about what kind of party this is. This is a party where we are celebrating in the fall the fruit of the vine. And there will be, in moderation, I'm sure, a consumption of a great deal of wine at the Feast of Sukkot. And let me just ask you, if you've got a drinking party, is the pastor the first one you're inviting? You know, I've run into this uh, from time to time. As a pastor, I'll get invited to someone's rehearsal dinner. Uh, for a wedding that I'm doing, and, and, it's, and, and occasionally I will go, but I'm always interested to see where they're going to put me. Because, well, you know, there are some things that you've got to rule out right away. You can't put me with the college buddies of the bride and groom, because that'll kill their fun. Um, well, and you know, you probably can't put me with Uncle Joe. I mean, you know how Uncle Joe is. He'll probably say, hey, Padre, have you heard the one about the priest, the terrorist, and the Methodist pastor who walk into a bar? No, I haven't, and I'm probably sure I don't want to. So, well, you've got to keep me away from Uncle Joe. So, where do you seat me? You already know, don't you? You've probably had to do this. You put the pastor with the grandparents on both sides. Seems faith, seems safe. They're not offended. Pastor's not offended. We move on, but it's weird. It's weird to have these priests, these Levites on your guest list. But it gets worse. And then you're told on your guest list the foreigners. I mean, imagine this. You spent uh, a number of years in Egypt as a slave, and you escaped, and some of the Egyptians decided they wanted to go with you. What's that? And then as you went along this 40-year wandering, you're picking up people along the way, which is really nice and all that, except you've got a limited amount of resources in, in the desert. And, well, these foreigners are taking some of your resources. And I know we never have this discussion in America, so it doesn't bother anybody. But it might bother you if you were one of the Israelites. And so now the foreigners? Ah, it gets worse. Next, the fatherless. I'll translate that for you. The orphan kid. The one that's probably out of control because he's got very little control put on his life. He probably doesn't get many sit-down meals in anybody's house, much less their tent at Sukkot. And who's no, who knows what he's going to say or, or what he's going to do? It, that could be awkward. And then the widows. Now, that probably seems respectable in our day, but think about this. In, in their day, you're probably, by being a widow, it's not just that your husband died, but that your children, your male sons, if you had any, they're gone too. So you have basically no visible means of financial support. Remember the story in the Old Testament about Naomi and Ruth? And one of the issues of Naomi is her husband's gone, and now her sons 
have died and she's left with two daughter-in-laws who don't have much way to bring her any income either. So let me put it another way. If you invite the widows to your feast, you can pretty well be assured they're not going to call you ahead of time and say, can I bring an appetizer or a dessert? Because they don't have the resources to do that. And yet, here they are on the guest list. Let's go back to the altar table. This is called, in Hebrew, a lulav. And it's a commandment of God that you were supposed to go out and find uh, three kinds of, uh, we might call them branches and plants, and then a fruit. Uh, But the thing about them was, while we had to order these and it cost us money to get them uh, for the festival here, in Israel, this would have been something you would go outside and find on the ground pretty much. Any person could have picked this up and taken it. We might have said, ah, go get a pecan and uh, get a branch from a mesquite tree. And we would have had something like that. And anybody can play, no matter how poor, no matter the situation. That's the guest list at the Feast of Tabernacles. But it gets worse, actually, because if you follow the story of the Feast of Tabernacles all the way, you've got to go to a prophet named Zechariah near the end of the Bible. And Zechariah says of these three great feasts that God has commanded, Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, only one is celebrated in eternity. And the one that we and Jesus and everybody else is going to celebrate together is Tabernacles. And this is who Zechariah adds to the guest list and says, oh, by the way, all the nations of the earth are going to come into God's tent. What do you mean by all? Do you mean those Egyptians who had us in slavery? Do you mean those Assyrians who six, seven hundred years later slaughtered our men, pregnant women, and children on their way to try to take Jerusalem? Do you mean the Babylonians who carted our Men off to slavery and killed our husbands and our fathers? They're in that tent? Do you mean the Romans who centuries later would take our land that we've had in our family for generations and then would charge us taxes and give us no way to make money to pay those taxes? And the answer is, yeah, they're on the list. It's a tent flap, friends, that's pretty wide open. In fact, I think God's inviting us to think about at the Feast of Tabernacles. Who is it that you don't want to invite to your party? If you can think of a group of people or a person's name, then you can make a mental note, write it down on your bulletin, put it in the notepad on your smartphone, because I guarantee you that's who God's calling you to invite. That's how it works. The flap is wider than we can possibly imagine. And so the question I've got is, what's going on here? Is there anyone not invited? This past week, uh, Jews all around the world celebrated their holiest day, Yom Kippur. You may know that for Jews, Yom Kippur is like Christmas Eve and Easter for us. It's big crowd filled the synagogue. And the story is told a couple years ago on this big crowd in the synagogue. The rabbi got up to give the annual Yom Kippur sermon. And as he delivered it, he was holding a baby. 
and the baby grabbed for his glasses and pulled them off the rabbi's face. And the rabbi had to struggle with his one hand, put him back on, and read some more of the sermon. Then the rabbi, then the rabbi was holding the baby, and the baby, with a free hand, went for the microphone. And fortunately, it was a bendable microphone, and and the baby went for that. Then the baby went for the microphone over the rabbi's mouth. Rabbi smiled, continued on. Then the baby went for the rabbi's glasses. Baby wasn't finished. Baby at some point scrambled a little bit later and was able to get to the rabbi's script. And all the time the people are smiling. This is like the best Yom Kippur sermon ever as they watch this. And after all this has happened and the people have smiled, the rabbi takes the baby, gives the baby to the mother who's sitting nearby and says, you forgive that baby for what he was doing during my sermon. And they all say, yeah. And they said, in fact, you'd probably forgive this baby for just about anything he would do. And they all said, yes, that's true. And then the rabbi looks at the congregation and says, tell me, how old does this baby have to be for you not to forgive him? Seven? Fourteen? Twenty-one? And you get the sense of where the rabbi is going. How old or under what circumstances does it take for that baby for you to close them out of the tent? You see, you may see the 21-year-old or the 28-year-old or the 60-year-old who's done something. But how do their parents see them? And how does the Heavenly Father see them? And would any parent close that flap and keep them out? It's a pretty big tent, this tabernacle tent. And that's a tough deal. And it makes me ask, well, what's going on here? Why is God doing that? And I suppose one possibility is there are some people, because of their situation or what they've done or failed to do, that they just get excluded. They never get invited to parties like this. And and God wants them to get an invitation. And I believe that's probably so. But I also believe, like most of the commandments, whether we understand them or not, they usually end up bringing a blessing to the person who is trying to carry out the commandment. This is what God says. After giving this very unusual guest list, God says, now now do this at the place I choose for seven days. And then God says, and I will bless you. And I will bless your harvest. And I will bless the work of your hands. And then, God says, and your joy will be complete. Here's the deal. The Feast of Tabernacles, like anything God has asked us to do, has no doubt something to do to help with other people. But most of all, the person who has helped is the person who opens their tent and shows hospitality. Because, God says, their joy has been made complete. There's a biblical principle here, which is a gift is never really received from God until you share it with somebody else. A joy is never really yours until you give it away. Did you ever see that reality show, Buried Alive? You didn't miss much. Um, but it was a story of all these people who hoard. And I'm not throwing any, any rocks at anybody because if you've been to my office, you know I don't have grounds to do that. But the thing about people that are hoarding is after a while they can't get to their kitchen anymore. They can't get anywhere in the house. Visitors don't come over to see them. They get shut off from life. It becomes harder and harder to thrive 
And there's no joy from saving and collecting everything that they have. Joy doesn't come in the hoarding. Joy comes in the sharing. And so to receive something when you give it away, that's how our joy is made complete. Think about it. We baptized three children this morning at the last service. And I think if the parents were here and they nodded last service, I'm going to speak on their behalf. I would say they would tell you that since they've had this child, they have less money and less time to spend on themselves than they used to. I think it's pretty clear. But at the same time, I would tell you that they would agree that their life is immeasurably better than it's ever been. And they are having more and experiencing more joy than they have ever experienced before. That's God's Sukkot economy. The more that we open our tent, the more we display hospitality, the more we in turn experience joy. There was a study done um, and released almost 15 years ago by a guy named David Myers from Yale. And the book was called American Paradox. And what he said, now this is dated, this is 15 years ago. He said, Americans are more affluent than they've ever been by and large, he said, and they are unhappier than they've ever been. And he said, There's, there is not a positive correlation between the amount of things you have and how joyful you are. In fact, there almost seems to be a negative correlation. The more we have, the less satisfied we are, the less meaning we experience in life. And he called this an American paradox. I'd call it almost a biblical principle. The more we have that we don't share, the less that joy that the Bible promises comes our way. It's interesting. The festival of Sukkot is called Festival of Weeks. I mean, excuse me, Festival of Ingathering, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacle. But my favorite name for it is it's called the Festival of Our Rejoicing. And they notice how often joy comes up in Sukkot. And scholars are pretty sure, scholars are pretty sure that Jesus was born during Sukkot. You probably already knew this. December 25th was a pagan holiday. Christians thought this would be a good day to take over from the pagans. Their most sacred day will turn it into a day to celebrate Jesus, which, which is wonderful. And, and, and I look forward to a, a midwinter break like that. But in reality, more than likely, Jesus was born in October. And, and, and how do we know? There are several clues in the Bible story. The shepherds are out in the fields with their flock. I assure you the shepherds are not going to be out in the fields with their flock if there's still crops in the fields. The farmers are not going to be happy. So we know it's that time of year when it's been harvested. Second things, what is the farmer, I mean, what are the shepherds and sheep kind of doing out there anyway? Because they're in tents. And the third thing is, in the season of our rejoicing, what does the angel say to the shepherds? I bring you tidings of great Joy. It was a Sukkot message. Joy. And then, just to hammer it home, the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. Friends, that's as much a Sukkot song in the day of Jesus as our little town of Bethlehem is a Christmas song today. It's just a slam dunk. And the only reason I tell you that is because I don't know anybody in human history who has lived out the principles of Sukkot and the Feast of the Tabernacles any better than Jesus had. 
Look at his guest list. Look where he shows up for parties. Sinners, tax collectors, people with questionable moral reputations. Tells parables about bringing in the poor into the kingdom. Jesus lives out this principle of wide open tent hospitality. And Jesus, more than anyone, shares freely what has been given by the Father to him. And I would argue he also lived more joyfully, deeply joyfully, than any other human being who ever existed. He lived out what God was calling people to do at this feast, to be hospitable, to open wide the tent, to share and then receive back the joy that comes from sharing. And I don't know about you. I, I, I think we all live in the same country. This is not a very joyful place right now. People aren't giving each other tidings of great joy. We could use some joy. We could use it because joy is contagious. You can see that in the baptism this morning. You, you start um, walking one of the children down the aisle and people start to smile and the people next to them smile. And you just watch it go all across like a fire that spreads through the sanctuary. Nothing as, as contagious as joy. And we're supposed to be the people of joy. And this is supposed to be the season of our rejoicing. And yet the church, I think, often gets the reputation that one farmer had. You may have heard this story. There were three farmers in a church and a younger farmer and then two older farmers um, in the story. And, the, and one of the older farmers was just cranky. His best way to describe him was never happy. You could have a wonderful service at church and he could, he could just sure he's heard one of the choir members who might have missed a note somewhere. Uh, you could have a bumper crop and he'll be disappointed that crops were all so good everywhere that the prices went down. You could have a wonderful rain and he'd worry there was too much rain. There was always something and he was never joyful or happy. So the young farmer says to his buddy, one of the older farmers, and said, look, I think I've got something that'll, that'll cheer him up. I, I, I think this will work. Um, why don't you invite him to go duck hunting with us? And so they did. And, and the cranky farmer reluctantly agreed. I mean, yeah, you've got to get up pretty early, and it's a little damp. And, you know, we've got a whole season to duck hunt. Why should we do it today? And, but, but he went anyway. And, and so they got. And, and for, sure enough, the first bird was shot and landed on the lake. And, and the younger farmer kind of nudged the, one of the other ones, said, his buddy, and said, watch this. Sent the dog to get the bird. Great. Dog goes, the bird's in the lake, the dog walks on the water, gets the bird, brings it back. Young farmer nudges his buddy, looks at the, the cranky farmer, and he's like, nothing, nothing at all. Well, a little bit later, another one shot, lands in the lake. Young farmer grins, nudges his buddy, sends his dog out. Sure enough, dog runs on the water this time, um, gets the, the bird, brings it back, drops it. And, and, the, and the young farmer nudges buddy and says, yeah, this, this ought to work. And, and he looks and nothing from the cranky farmer. So finally he says, don't you have anything to say? Cranky farmer looked at him and looked at the dog and said, he can't swim, can he? <laughs> it's an old story. But it's a story that could be so easily applied to the people who claim to be celebrating the season of our rejoicing 
they need us. And the circumstances don't matter. Joy is not tied to circumstances. It's not tied to what we have or or what we've done. One thing scholars will say uh, that will quote the Jews talking about their three major festivals, which all celebrate in one form or another escaping Egypt, really. And they said, if you want to summarize uh, Passover and Pentecost and tabernacles in three sentences, this is what the Jews would say. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. Rarely tied to the circumstances, but tied to something deeper and more significant. And the more that we take what we do have and share it, the more our joy becomes complete. And the better off is the world around us. Um, we just got, as some of you may know, a new, a new puppy. So the, our puppy is starting um, uh, puppy kindergarten. And a few weeks ago, we went uh, without the puppy to the orientation session. And at the orientation session, the trainer said to us, Now look, I just want you to know that when you bring your puppy back next week, you're going to be humiliated. Your puppy's no longer going to be interested in you. Your puppy's going to be much more interested in the dogs around them and everything else going on. And I just don't want you to feel bad. Just check your pride at the door. And then the trainer said, But there's one thing you can do. You can bring lots of treats. And every time you catch your puppy looking at you, give her a treat. Every time you catch your puppy not going after the puppy next to her, give her a treat. He said, do everything you can do to let your puppy know the party's not over there. The party's right here. And then as we got ready to leave, he repeated one more time. Bring lots of treats and be the party. Come to think of it, I don't think I could tell you any better than that. Bring lots of treats, enough to share, and be the party.